Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. For those of you that haven't been here in a little bit, or maybe the first time we're in this series called what kind of church? And what we're describing is, or trying to paint the picture is, what kind of church has God called uh, the capital C church to be, but also journey? Pastor John's done a great job first couple weeks really tackling this. And if you've not heard those messages, they are incredible. I want to encourage you to go back, listen to those. But they don't necessarily, you don't have to have heard those. You're not going to get lost today. But here's a quick recap of where we've been. This is what Pastor John said. What kind of church are we? We're a Jesus following, disciple-making church that Jesus promised and that his resurrection makes a reality. And as Pastor Jeremy mentioned earlier, today we're going to talk about grace. More specifically, we're going to talk about the new covenant. Pastor John talked last week about a new movement. Jesus came to give us a new movement, and it's a new covenant. And some of y'all, I just lost you right there. You're like, well, I've never used the word covenant. What are you talking about? So we're going we're gonna to unpack that. Just relax. Not only are we going to explain what that is, but why is it important and how does it apply to your life and my life today? Cool? Oh, y'all are awake. Good. All right. All right. So I want y'all to imagine, okay? It's August. Okay? I want you to imagine December comes around. Some of you have already started or maybe even finished, finished Christmas shopping. None of us like you, Okay? So I want you to imagine I get up on this stage in December and I say, hey, listen, I got a special announcement. It's kind of big. It's actually really big. I know every year around this time we celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's kind of a big deal for Christians. I said, but I got a great idea. This year, instead of celebrating Jesus' birthday, we're going to celebrate my birthday. Some of y'all are like, this man's done lost his mind. (laughs) Like, can you imagine that actually happening? Like, how absurd would that be? And, And more importantly, can anything be more absurd than to try to come up here and change what we celebrate every December 25th? And that's sort of what Jesus did in Luke 22. And I think it's just absurd, if not even more. In the book of Luke chapter 22, it says this, then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Some of you are like, man, I have no idea what you just said. You just wasted 20 seconds of my life. Let me unpack that. This idea of the Passover, it's the largest celebration in the Jewish community. And really what Passover 101 is, is what, what took place is Jesus, or, or God, I should say, in the Old Testament, he told the Israelites, he said, what I want you to do is I want you to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood, and I want you to mark up, paint the doorpost. And what God's going to do when he comes through the neighborhood, comes through the town, he's going to pass over your home and he's going to protect everybody inside of it. It was one of the ways that God rescued and redeemed the Israelites. And so they celebrate, they hold that in high regard. A couple key phrases there is they used the blood of a lamb and God passed over. Verse 14 and 15, when the hour came, 
Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, when you hear that, if you're one of the disciples, you got to think Jesus just misspoke. No, no, we don't celebrate the Passover and then suffer. We celebrate the Passover so we don't suffer. And so now the disciples are a little bit confused. Like, Jesus, you're not getting scripture right, my man. And I guarantee there are some bold people. I'm sure they, they called Jesus out. And then they keep going. It says this, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after the supper, he, after supper, he took the cup saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I want everybody to read this together. What's it say? Okay. You either weren't ready or you don't know how to read. Here, here's, what, here's what we're going to do. This is new. That is covenant. Okay. One, two, three. Yes. So Jesus is saying, listen, this is a new, new covenant. And as soon as he would have said new covenant, their ears would have perked because they were waiting for a new covenant. That for hundreds and hundreds of years, they are waiting on what Jesus is doing. It says, hey, I'm coming to bring a new covenant, but listen, it's going to take new blood. And Jesus is introducing this. And he says, listen, I know your biggest celebration was Passover, but there's now something greater. You see, you don't cancel Christmas unless there's something greater to celebrate in its place. And as I mentioned earlier, how absurd that would have been to say, hey, we're not going to celebrate Jesus. We're going to celebrate what Jesus is doing. What he did here is Jesus used his final Passover meal to announce the end of Passover. As Jesus came and said, hey, this is not just my final Passover. This is the final Passover because there's a new covenant. And a new covenant comes with all kinds of a new life. And I love that. So let's unpack that. What's the old covenant and what is the new covenant? And what in the world does this have to do with any of us? So first thing is to understand that covenant is kind of synonymous with Testament. So you, you may be familiar with the Old Testament, New Testament. So it's like saying, if you want to find out about the Old Covenant, you would go to the Old Testament. You want to find out about the New Covenant, you go to the New Testament. So here's what I want us to do. Here's a little graph. Okay, we have the Old Covenant here. We have the New Covenant here. We're going to look at who it's for, the solution to sin, lengths of forgiveness, and who is allowed in the presence of God. So the Old Covenant, who's it for? It's for Israel. God had a working uh, arrangement with the Israelites. The Old Covenant was just for them. What was their solution to sin? It was a sacrificial system. So every time they would sin, what they would have to do is they would sacrifice an animal. I think it's the greatest diet plan ever. Imagine every time you sin, throwing away some of your groceries. Like, like we would lose weight. I mean, I can't even imagine that. And that was the way that they had their solution to sin. How long was that solution? It was temporary. You see, every time they sinned, they had to have another sacrifice. Every single time, just constant, 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 constant. Now some of you are realizing why you'd lose so much weight. Who's allowed in the presence of God? Only the priest. So this is the old covenant. The new covenant, who's it for? The new covenant is for everyone. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. So this is by Jeremiah. This is 600 years before Jesus comes on the scene. So remember how I told you they were looking for a new covenant? They were aware that a new covenant was coming 600 years before him. Jeremiah kind of preludes to that. So it's for everyone. Romans 1.16 says this. 
says, for I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Gentiles. See this language here, the Jew first and the Gentile. This is all throughout the New Testament, this language. It's no, it's no more the Jew, period. It's the Jew first and the Gentile. Gentile meaning anybody outside of the Jewish community. What's the solution to sin? Jesus' sacrifice. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What's the length of forgiveness? Once and for all. Unlike those high, other high priests, he does not need other sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once and for all when, when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. Who's allowed in the presence of God? Everyone. Since we have this great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Let us boldly come to the, to the throne of, grace, or of our gracious God. There, will be, there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So quick recap. Old covenant was for the Israelites. They had a sacrificial uh, system for their sin, but that was only temporary. And the only people that could be in the presence of God was priests. Jesus comes on the scene and gives this new covenant with new blood. And he says, it's for everyone. He's the, the sacrifice and it's once and for all. You don't have to constantly uh, uh, just crucify someone new every single time you sin. It's once and for all. And we could all be in the presence of God. And that's why we call it the gospel, because that's good news. That is good news today. As Jesus is unpacking this, like the old covenant to the new covenant, I got to imagine not only the disciples, but so many people around the disciples that are hearing this kind of being unpacked by Jesus. They had to be confused. Like, like for 600 years, they had to imagine what a new covenant would have looked like or possibly looked like, but they never imagined what God had in store. Nobody can imagine that type of grace. It reminds me of my, when my son was five years old. I know you guys raised perfect kids, and that's awesome. Uh, really, really proud of y'all. Um, but when my son was five, uh, it was probably poor parenting on my wife's end. He made a mistake. And um, my son made a mistake, and he's at the age where not only did he make a mistake, he's aware of the gravity of his sin, right? It wasn't just that he made a mistake. It was that he knowingly made the mistake and then tried to lie or not tell the whole truth to cover it up. It was kind of in our family. He was our, our first child. It was kind of our first like, okay, we got to punish him. What do we do? And listen, if you're a kid in here, just a little side tip. There is no confident parent. None of us have a clue what we're doing. Okay. None of us. And so what happened, this took place right before I was getting home from work. And so my wife had my son, Riley, in his bedroom, he says, wait till your dad comes home. And so my son's waiting in his room for the wrath of his father, which I have very little wrath. So, and he's in his room. I go and see him and I'm crying. And I know this is a pivotal point for him. I got, I can't be his buddy. I'm his parent. And I don't know what to do. Like I mentioned earlier, none of us parents know what we're doing. So I just kind of make it up on the spot. I go into his room. Like I had a plan. And I get into his room and he's just crying and I'm like, hold it together. And I still don't know what to do at this point. And I just say, Riley, get in the car. And so I have Riley get in the car and I start driving. I don't know where I'm going. 
And then all of a sudden, I had an idea. And so I drive Riley to this ice cream shop. And he gets a look of confusion on his face. And he's still crying. And I said, I want you to get out of the car. We didn't say a word the entire drive. And he gets out of the car. And now we're waiting in line. And you could only imagine the confusion that's coming over him. And I looked at him and I said, Riley, with tears in his eyes, I said, I want you to pick out the biggest and your most favorite ice cream sundae with whatever you want on it. And he's not super excited. He's more like cautious, like something's about to happen. Right? And we get up and we order and then we sit down and we begin to eat the ice cream. And he's still a little cautious. He says, Dad, I don't understand what you're doing. Aren't you supposed to punish me? I said, yeah. He said, well, why are you buying me ice cream? I said, because... I did what you did before. I made a big mess, and instead of getting punished, I got ice cream. He said, really, who did that for you? I said, this guy named Jesus. You see, Jesus did not give me what I deserved. Instead, he gave me ice cream for eternity. He gave me himself, which is the greatest prize ever. And this five-year-old moment, we unpacked the gospel and what grace And you could see his wheels kind of turn. And he's like, this is going to happen every time. And I made sure, I made sure that he understood this is a one-time deal. And some of y'all are wondering, you're like, hey, we know you have two daughters. You know, what did you do with them? Because my daughter is 13. One of my daughters is 13, one's 17. And you're like, well, what did you do with them? Did you do the same thing? I have not yet. This is my plan. As soon as they sin, I'm going to do the same thing with them. Okay, I have it all figured out. I'm going to be a fair parent, but so far they've not made any mistakes. So at this ice cream shop, my son is confused as a five-year-old. Try to understand he's thinking punishment and gets grace. That's what's going on in the disciples in this Jewish community. We're we're used to a, a wrathful kind of response, and then this new covenant comes. And we're not sure what to make of the new covenant. It requires new blood and it's this new grace. And we're excited, but we're caught. We're not sure what to do with this new grace. And so in the rewritten written words of heavy D, I would say this. Now that we found grace, what do we do with it? Some of y'all, some heavy D fans. Some of y'all are Googling heavy D at the moment. Do not do that. Now that we've found grace, what do we do with it? Two things. You receive God's grace. You receive God's grace. Second thing is you give God's grace. That sounded really easy for me to say. Listen to this. Some of you, it's impossible for you to receive God's grace. Some of you are coming to church thinking you can earn God's grace. Some of you are thinking, man, once I get my life right, then I'm going to receive God's grace. Some of you have the hardest time receiving God's grace because you think God's grace is only misdemeanor grace. You don't think it's felony grace. You think it's only for the small sins and not the big sins that you have, but other people don't have. Like you're the worst sinner on the planet, but God, God's grace is for everybody else. And the good news is, is God looks at sin the same. There is no felony and misdemeanor. There's separation from him, period. It doesn't matter if you're one inch or the Grand Canyon. If there is separation, there's separation. And today, I want to encourage you, if you have been resisting the grace of God, you are missing out on the greatest gift you could possibly have. Freely receive the grace of God. The second thing that we need to do is we need to give it. 
And I wanna encourage you, which one do you struggle with today and pinpoint that and try to become an expert at it? Maybe you struggle in receiving God's grace. Sometimes the church has a problem in giving away God's grace. I wanna share briefly a story in John chapter four. Jesus meets this woman at the well. It's one of my favorite stories. She, he, he meets this woman at the well at noon and he begins a conversation with her. And in that conversation, he says, hey, can I have a drink of water? Would you give me a drink? And she is shocked. And this is what she says in John verse four. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And this reminds me of what Pastor John's said the past couple weeks, which I love. People who are nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. People who are nothing like Jesus. They didn't have a lot in common. They're almost polar opposites, but they like Jesus. And Jesus begins to have a conversation with her at the well and begins to just unpack a couple of things. And then he just pauses and he says, hey, would you, do you mind? Go, why don't you go grab your husband? I'd love to talk with him as well. And just the look. And I can't imagine the fear. And she goes on to say, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm actually not married. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. You're not married. As a matter of fact, you've been married five times and the man you're currently living with isn't your husband. Imagine that scenario. She gets called out for her deepest struggles. It's as, it's as if Jesus is saying this, I know your sexual sin. I know your fear of rejection. I know your insecurities of never being loved. You see, in those days, it was the man that would initiate a divorce, not the woman. So she was rejected five times. It wasn't that she didn't find Mr. Right. She was rejected over and over and over. And when you are in a village, a small town in this context, and you've been married five times and who you're married with now is not your husband, you have what's called a reputation. And it's not a good one. And Jesus looks right at her soul and says, I know your sexual sin. As a matter of fact, I know all your sin. I know your fears and insecurities. And listen, look right here. I think Jesus would say the same thing to you. I know your sin. I know your sexual sins. I know all your sins. I know your fears. I know your insecurities. And just like he didn't flinch at those at the woman in the well, he doesn't flinch with yours. That's what he came for. And he begins to have this conversation with the woman at the well. And the woman ends up understanding a little bit more about grace. I would actually say that she got a master's degree in grace that day. I don't know if you've ever gotten a master's degree in grace where you experience it firsthand. I know for me, I, I did. This was some years ago. Right after my wife and I got married, we moved to Los Angeles to help plant a church with my old youth pastor from Orlando and some mentors. And one of the mentors you may have heard me talk about before I talk about him. This won't be the last time I talk about him. His name's uh, Danny Fuakawa. This is me and Pastor Fu. He's now a pastor. This was my a uh, volunteer small group leader. He was, a, he was an architect and then ended up becoming a pastor and moving to LA. And I, my wife and I went to LA. And one day he said, hey, Dustin, we're gonna be traveling out of town. He knew my wife and I shared one car and he had uh, one of those uh, yellow, bright yellow Nissan Xterras. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Big old SUVs and it, it was newer. And he loved that thing. And he said, hey, we're gonna go out of town. He knew we shared one car. And then he just tossed me the keys. He said, why don't you just take my car for four, about 10 days? I was like, are you serious? He said, yeah, yeah, go for it. 
Sunday, we were leaving church that Sunday and we were going pretty fast. The speed limit. <laughs> but pretty fast. Maybe 45, 50 miles an hour. And we were going through an intersection and there was this older lady that never saw the light and never saw a bright yellow SUV. And without even tapping the brakes, she just T-boned us. And it hit my wife's side and it just totaled the car. Only accident my wife or I have ever been in. Sent us to the hospital. She got banged up pretty good. Thankfully, she ended up being okay. And I remember just being just mortified to tell Pastor Fu that we just totaled his baby. And so I let him know and I said, man, I'm so sorry. We totaled your car. I don't even know where it is. Like we were in the hot, I don't even know, I don't even know what to tell you. To make matters worse, the insurance was problematic. It took six months of him being out of car to finally get everything figured out. Because it was totaled, he ended up getting a brand new yellow Nissan Xterra. <laughs> Felt horrible. Two weeks after he got the new car, he went out of town again and we're talking and he passes me the keys. And I'm standing and he passed me the keys and I was like, nope. I don't think so. I was like, foo, I cannot take your car. Like, I still feel horrible what happened last time. And he reminded me of this verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You see, what grace is, it's tossing people the keys after they just wrecked your car. You see, what grace is, it's tossing people the keys right after they wrecked their life. As if you have no recollection of it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You see, that day I got a master's degree in grace. And I realized what he was doing. He wasn't letting me borrow his car. He discipled me for years. And what he was doing is he was teaching me about grace. And there's so many layers to grace. And that's what the woman at the well was unpacking. And after she continues this conversation, she begins to understand that this is, in fact, the Messiah. And I love what her response is in John 4, 28. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. That's what Jesus does, right? Like we come to the well with priorities. We meet Jesus. He changes our priorities. We forgot we even needed water. Why? Because he is what quenches our thirst. He is the prize. He is enough. And our priorities change and she just runs into town. Verse 39 says this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You see, what did she do? She, that day she both received the grace of God and then what did she do? She gave away the grace of God. You see, this is a small community you got to put the context in, this, in the whole situation. Small community. She had a reputation, and it was not a good one. Who did she have that reputation from? The people in the village. As soon as she gets something they don't have, can you imagine the temptation to say, no, I have, I have an advantage over you? And instead, she immediately takes the grace and gives it to the same people that she faced that insecurity and rejection from. And she freely gave it away. That's what we as believers are 
to do. We're to receive God's grace and then immediately run and give away the grace of God. I think some of our darkest days as, a, as, as Christianity are when we receive grace and don't give it away. I think some of you and I's darkest days are when we receive grace and then we don't give it away. I call that a grace hoarder. You, are, you and I are grace hoarders when we get grace, but then we don't give it away. You understand that? You're hoarding grace. You're hoarding the greatest thing that God's ever given to you. And you are never meant to hoard grace at all. This is what Philip Yancey says in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He said this, grace is the one thing the world can't duplicate and the one thing it craves above all. Grace does not excuse the sin, but treasures the sinner. I love that last line. We don't excuse sin. We just value this. We just treasure the sinner more. So what do we do with this? Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That's what we're supposed to do. Freely give, freely receive and freely give. So a couple, about a month ago, I did some work around my house. This is a pipe. I know because I had to Google a lot about this about a month ago. I, I put in a drain field in my house. Okay. I know what you're thinking. No, you didn't. I didn't. I invited my brother to come and help me put in a drain field in my house. Okay. And so what we ended up doing is we ended up running about 60 feet of pipe from one location to the other. And uh, not only did my brother help me, but my wife, my kids, literally all of us went out there and we put this drain field in. And what I'm doing is I am digging a trench. Okay. I'm digging a trench. And as I'm digging the trench, I find three other pipes. And as I see these other pipes, I'm like, this is not my irrigation. As a matter of fact, I have no idea what these three pipes are for. And so I end up following the pipes. I end up following where they go. And at the end of a pipe is this. And, I, and what it is, is there's a cap on the end of the pipes. Rendering the pipe useless. Y'all with me? Now listen, some of y'all are plumbers, you know a little bit more than I do. I understand there are some times and reasons, good reasons why you need to cap a pipe. I get it. I understand that. I know full well. But once you cap a pipe, what you are doing is the original purpose of the pipe is now pointless. You get that? Because a pipe was never meant to be capped. The whole point of a pipe is water goes in here and it comes out here. You see this tennis ball. This is God's grace for you. And the whole point of God's grace is that it would go in you, but not just in you, that it would throw, flow through you and come out the other side. And what so many of us can do from time to time is we gladly receive God's grace. And what we accidentally do is we end up capping it. And the world has, whoa, easy, <laughs> easy. That's God's grace, guys. It just wants to get out everywhere. Am I right? That was planned, I'm telling you. Some of you are like, listen, if we don't give it away, does that mean it comes back out? No, don't read into that too much, okay? <laughs> the grace of God is meant to come in us and flow through you. One of them, if I were to interview you or just have a conversation with you, you and I are at Starbucks, and I would say, tell me about your story. What's so amazing about God? Chances are all of us are going to come back to grace. All of us are going to come back to grace. We're going to be overwhelmed by it. But then so many of us in the church, we take that grace and we just cap it. 
and the world and our neighbors and our kids and our parents, they have no clue of the grace that you're talking about because you've put a cap on grace and you've been a grace hoarder. And what God is saying for the church is when you unleash grace and take off a cap, don't put a cap on, put a sprinkler and drench everybody around you with the grace of God. That's the job of the church to create a, a grace irrigation system. Our job is we don't have a monopoly on grace. Our job is we don't get to determine who gets it and who doesn't get it. This is what it says in Matthew 10, 8. It says this, as freely as you have received, freely give. So you want to know how much grace should you give? Take five minutes and think about all the grace you've give, been given. I don't know about you, but I got a lot. I got a lot. Matter of fact, I don't need a sprinkler. I need a fire hose. I need to drench people the way that God has drenched me. Amen. Journey, what kind of church are we? We're a Jesus-following, disciple-making, grace-receiving, and grace-giving church that Jesus promised and that his resurrection makes a reality. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, God, I don't even want to think where I would be without your grace. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. We're talking about having a master's degree in grace, but the truth is I have a PhD in sin. Like I, the, the depths of my depravity, Lord, is so deep, but your grace is deeper. And God, we just, first and foremost, we say thank you for your grace. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the cross. Where we get to step in and we get to live in the new covenant with new blood, with, with no longer are we sacrificing lambs, but there has been a sacrifice of the lamb. And we come before you and our only response is to throw our hands up and say, thank you, Lord, and fully surrender. And God, I pray, would you help us where there are clogs in our pipes and that we are hoarding grace? Would you help us to unclog those pipes? I know that annoying neighbor, God, would you help us to give us that grace to them or, or to that one person that just doesn't understand us? Help us to drench them with grace because you don't understand us. God, I pray as freely as we have received, would we freely give? We're not an old covenant. We're in a new covenant. And wow, what a difference. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.